Ahoy, it's your boy, and welcome to episode 44 of the podcast. This is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you're already a fan of the show and you want to help us spread the word, take a few minutes, uh, rate and review the show, give us a five-star review, write a couple sentences about why you like the podcast, and uh, think of one person in your life who you think would like the show and share it with them. Let's see if we can grow this audience. Um, Man, do I sound really loud? I'm looking at the waveform as my voice is recording here, and it looks pretty big, so everything appears to be okay, so, jeez. Sorry if I'm blowing everyone's eardrum. Um, what's going on? Uh, I had my birthday this week. I turned 35 uh, a couple days ago, and I was just speaking on the phone with a friend, and... I was already well aware of this, but I think it was the first time I had articulated to somebody else that it's actually been kind of a rough week for me. Um, I know I've mentioned on other episodes that um, I haven't, I haven't been as motivated for school as I have been in the recent past, and I don't know what that's about. I am still doing well; my grades are great, uh, etc. But um, I don't know; things are just a little bit harder, and. I had a therapy session on Tuesday, which was, you know, we're doing everything remotely and it was just an awful session and it wasn't because it was heavy. It wasn't because anything serious was coming up. It was the opposite. It was because things were difficult and it was hard to speak and I really didn't have much to say. And there were a lot of, there was a lot of silence and it just, you know, I felt like, I don't know, like I kind of didn't want to be there and I you know, felt like my therapist didn't really want to be there. And, um, yeah, it was just, um, it was disappointing. And, um, uh, the next day was my birthday and I didn't do anything. And my girlfriend for the last couple of weeks has been asking me, so what do you want to do for your birthday? And I've just kept saying, I don't know. And I was working the night before I had therapy. I ended up working that night. And I think at some point it was probably stressful. And I just texted her and say, Hey, you know what? I think tomorrow I'm going to take the day for myself. I'm just going to stay home and do nothing. And she was like, cool. But even throughout all of yesterday, I felt kind of shitty. I felt kind of down in the dumps. I wasn't really motivated. I was finding it hard to focus on things. And the more I thought about it, I had sort of forgotten that in a lot of ways, this was kind of how I felt at the beginning of the shelter in place. You know, at the start of the pandemic, on the one hand, I think there was a little bit of fear, but I also remember just finding it really hard to focus on stuff. And I remember a lot of people reporting the same thing. And it's just strange that we've been doing this for you know, five months now or, or something like that. And even though there's no end in sight, it's just strange that, oh, excuse me, all of a sudden I'm sort of back in this place where it's hard to focus and I feel unmotivated and... On Tuesday, I was saying that it didn't feel like depression. It felt like a little bit of anxiety and just a little bit of just feeling kind of, I don't know, just kind of blah. And yet, today, probably more than ever, it, 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 is, it does feel like depression. I feel just kind of down in the dumps. And um, I don't know. That vacation I've been talking about sounds better than ever, frankly. Although when I think about it, you know, especially if yesterday is, is any, um, um, you know, if yesterday is a measure of what not having to do things feels like, I don't know. 
you know, I know what a vacation looks like for other people, but for me, there's really nothing I want to do. I, I kind of enjoy the idea of having nothing to do and just kind of staying home. But I had one day of it yesterday, or uh, not yesterday, but earlier in the week, and it just I felt kind of shitty. You know, I felt like I was wasting my time. And I can't remember how we got on the topic, but I was talking with my brother about this, and he was saying that when he was in grad school, they used to joke all the time about, you know, they all knew, had the same feeling of, sorry, man, yawning on you guys. Oh, jeez. They all, they all had the same feeling of when you're in grad school, you're just so inundated with things to do that even though you've put in 12 hours of work, you know, it could be 9 o'clock at night and you sit down to watch a movie or something, and 15 minutes into it, you're just thinking about everything you have to do and you feel kind of guilty that you're, you know, watching a movie, you know, that you're taking this time for yourself to kind of relax. You just feel kind of guilty. And that's kind of how I feel with most things. Um, and it's hard to start things, you know, it's hard to get myself to start doing homework. And when I do, it's fine, but it's hard to stay focused. And damn, dude, (sighs) really again, dude. So I gotta be honest. I actually tried to record this podcast podcast yesterday about the same time. And I got about five minutes into it and I stopped because I was just yawning so much and I thought now was going to be a good time to sit down and do it because I feel pretty good. And yet, lo and behold, I sit down here to do the podcast and I'm yawning and I feel another one coming on you guys right now. <sighs> what is this about? Remember when this used to be the only thing I did on the podcast? I used to just yawn. Man, I thought we were fucking out of the woods with that thing, but here we are. What's that about? I feel like it has to be related to what I'm talking about. I think it has to be related to how I'm feeling. There's something, you know, I used to do another podcast and I remember one of the guests, one of the guests told me that uh, yawning is your, you know, your parasympathetic nervous system trying to calm you down. It's part of your flight or fight response. And maybe there is something about the, the anxiety that I am feeling and taking to things that's bringing this up for me. (sighs) You know, I told my therapist the last couple of weeks, about 15 minutes before my phone conversation, I, I feel butterflies in my stomach. And I don't know what that's about. I think it's, I think it's not, I think it's knowing that I have to spend the next hour talking about my feelings, which is a lot like what a podcast is, and not really knowing what to say, and not really knowing what I'm going to talk about. And, you know, it's not supposed to be a performance. It's not, it's just supposed to be a conversation. And whatever comes up, comes up a lot like the podcast, but you know, I still feel that pressure. I want to use my time wisely. I want to make sure I'm talking about the things I need to talk about. Um, one, because it's not free and I want to make sure I'm, I don't want to waste my money. Um, but yeah, I think there is a performative quality to it for me. Um, and I think I apply the same feelings and principles to the podcast. Um, one of the things that was actually frustrating to talk about in therapy, because I didn't really feel like I had a lot to say about it, and um, yeah, I, for some reason I think my therapist thinks that this stuff is kind of nonsense, or I don't know, I don't want to, I don't want to put put any words in in their mouth, but um, yeah, they're very educated, and I, I guess I just always assume that they kind of know things that I don't. But I was telling them that you know one of the things as I've been dealing with this, um, I don't know, low 
simmer, low hum of depression or anxiety and whatever I'm feeling. Jeez, I'm... I really am sorry. I, I am going to push through and do this, but I, I just I know that as a listener, when you hear me yawn, it's very likely that it's also making you yawn, and uh, I apologize. So, so uh, uh, I was saying, you know, I'm not very excited about school right now, and as I've been kind of depressed, I've just kind of been paying attention to, you know, what am I doing throughout my day or in my life that does bring me excitement. And I remembered being at my girlfriend's new place, and I had brought this book that I had just ordered. It's uh, Irving Goffman, who was a sociologist. He wrote a book called uh, The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. And uh, it was sort of glossed over in my um, sociology textbook and also in my uh, also in my communications class, actually. But something about it really stuck out to me. And it was one of those things that as soon as I, my eyes fell on it, I said, Oh, this is for me. Like, this is something I have to look into. And Goffman, um, you know, his sociological perspective was, you know, I, I think he was one of, they're called the symbolic interactionists. And they basically believe that the building blocks of the self and, and, uh, our identity comes from our social interactions. And, um, uh, his sort of perspective or theory, um, was called dramaturgy, which uh, takes its name from literally dramaturgy, the study of theater. And his perspective was that life is, or the self that we experience, the self we create is a, is a performance. And it's one that we rehearse and practice uh, kind of in the back stages of our lives and, and, and really present to the public. And he doesn't mean it in a cynical way, but um, just that um, the selves that we present to society are... Um, considered and we have masks and we have fronts and um, all of our lives are basically um, sort of part and parcel of this performance that we're giving everything from our costume to our makeup to the props that we use and so uh, this book um, the presentation of self in everyday life basically articulates this theory not only how we perform but how we perform together and how um you know, life is basically this ensemble performance that we all play for each other and take part in. And, uh, and, and honestly, talking about it now, I've been more cogent than I was even in therapy. But as I was reading this book, I was sort of just sort of, you know, halfway through the first chapter or whatever. And I was sort of like, you know, just kind of noting stuff in my book. And I'm not one of these fucking dildos that like <laughs> writes in the margins of my books. But I do sort of put check marks and things in paragraphs that are interesting, and um, because I, t- I, you know, I, I often read things more than once, and um, yeah, one I think I just like interacting with 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 the, the physical artifact. You know, I think it kind of keeps me engaged. Um, but it's funny too, as I reread things, I often often find that I agree with most of the things that I've ticked. You know. And, uh, yeah, it's also just a, a kind of a roadmap for me. If I ever want to flip through the thing, I kind of, I know where the interesting bits are. Um, but as I was sitting there at my girlfriend's place reading this book, I was getting genuinely excited and it reminded, I mean, I, I guess in the last couple of weeks also, I've sort of returned, which I often do. I've sort of returned to Chinese philosophy and sometimes, I mean, I always have an enduring interest in it, but sometimes I sort of go off into the weeds and I'm reading sort of essays and studies about Chinese philosophy, right? Like some sinologist will have a sort of collection of essays on their interpretation of this or that Chinese philosopher, um, 
and uh, or there'll be anthologies of essays around a general topic, um, you know, a certain philosopher or a certain aspect, and and you know, f- from different philosophers, whatever. Basically, just sort of sort of cerebral academic stuff about Chinese philosophy, and all that stuff's well and good, and I I find it kind of interesting, but. Whenever I go back to the original source texts, whenever I go back to the Analects of Confucius, and, and, and it, it could be a new translation, it could be rereading an old translation, when I go back to things like the Analects, when I go back to the Tao Te Ching, um, um, you know, I have this great book, I highly recommend it, it's called A, a Source Book in Chinese Philosophy, and um, the anthologist and translator is Wing Sit Chan, it's fucking, it's really a phenomenal book. I read all of it two or three times, except for the chapters on Buddhism, because I don't know, it doesn't really appeal to me. But the point is, is that when I go back to these source texts, it's like I fall in love with them all over again. And it's like a breath of fresh air, because otherwise I get sort of inundated with someone else's interpretation and, and the sort of academic interpretation. And I sort of get away from whatever, whatever it is about the text that I deeply relate to and what makes it inter- interesting for me. And I think when I go off into the weeds, I'm trying to find out what the truth is with a capital T, like what is the objective academic truth about this text? And I think as I get older, for some reason, I'm, I'm just, I kind of care less about that shit. And I kind of just want to like things for the reasons that I like them. And when I go back and read the Analects, it's like I, I, it's like I'm reminded all over again of why I like it, and what, yeah. And the point that arises from all this is what um, I think I was feeling some some kind of excitement reading Irving Goffman's The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life, and I'm a bit embarrassed about it because when my therapist asks me, "Oh yeah, what is it about that that's intriguing for you?" I, I it's very hard for me to come up with an answer that I. Eh, that I hear myself saying I'm enjoying, um, because I do want things to be true. Or I, I, there's a, there's a big part of me that very much wants the things that I enjoy and the things that I, I don't know, believe for lack of a better word to be objectively true. Um, and yet in my adult life, the things that I find the most intriguing, the things that I, that I feel like I relate to the most deeply are not things that I know to be observably true. Are in fact are things that are very likely not true, in the sense that we usually mean that things are you know scientifically demonstrable or provable, but they still are the only things that stir my emotions in the way that I'm talking about. That really speak to me. That I really light up about, and that I get excited about. That I get enthusiastic about. You know, the I Ching, for one, is uh, not true in the sense that, you know, certain things are true. I mean, it is like tarot. It is like um, any other system of divination, um, any other spiritual or religious text. It's not true. I mean, it talks about things like the Tao and yin-yang and... um, you know, I mean, the idea that all of life's circumstances can be distilled into 64 hexagrams or uh, symbols or situations is preposterous. But there's something about that ecosystem of thinking that, while not true with a capital T, I relate to it on a very deep level, and it illuminates the way I experience the world. Um, And it's not... You know, and it's not in the way, like, I understand what it's like to want to like something. Um, for some reason, my mind is jumping to uh, 
God damn, dude. He's like, uh, he's, he should be the co-star of this fucking podcast, but our MVP from 2019, Matt, we were just on the phone earlier today talking about electronic music and talking about our experience with Ableton and, and you know, my new interest in synth- synthesis and synthesizers, and we were just kind of talking through some of those things. But, you know, I know what it's like to look at something objectively and decide, hey, I'm going to get into that because I think there's something in there for me. And... um for some reason, I, I am thinking about synthesis, even though I'm really enjoying it right now. I, I could see someone trying to get into that because they want to and kind of putting in some good effort, but kind of being unfulfilled. Um, that's not what I'm talking about. I guess I, I guess someone, I'm, I'm trying to emphasize that for me, Chinese philosophy is not something I saw. It's, it's something that I stumbled upon and affected me in a way that few things, I, maybe nothing I've, I've ever experienced. Um, uh, really has. It's not something I was socialized to. It's not like um, Christianity or, or, or something. It's it, it's not really even in our common experience, you know. It feels, you know, and maybe someone would challenge us, but it feels like it speaks to some intrinsic quality about my, my person. It, it just, it, it, it sort of illuminates and explains and gives meaning to a lot of what my life experience has been to date. And I'm deeply sort of insecure about that because it is, um, I guess because I came to Chinese philosophy through the I Ching. And when you talk about things like Chinese philosophy, it, it can get very woo-woo for people very quickly. And because I am so judgmental of people who are very much into like tarot and uh, other kind of new agey types of things or whatever, I like when I experience them as if these things are just like, in the same way, you know, if, if Goffman is right that life is a performance, I feel like this is these are their props in costume, right? These are the things that they've sort of adorned themselves with because they very much want me to see them in a specific way. Um, yeah, maybe that's crazy. Um, and maybe I could be completely wrong, but... Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm getting kind of tangled up in my own thinking here, but... I think I'm just trying to say, as someone who's been an atheist and skeptic their whole life and has wanted to know the truth about things, who sort of dismissed a lot of other worldviews based on the truth value of them, right? Like um, being a, um, a Christian fundamentalist, believing that the Bible is the inerrant word of God is not, you know, I thought it was silly. I still think it's silly, frankly, but one of the chief reasons that it's silly is because it's not true. It can't possibly be. Nobody can read the book of Genesis and, and say, oh, wow, I believe that. Um, for the same reasons that nobody could read the I Ching and, and, and say that they believe it word for word and, uh, and be taken seriously. Um, but at the same time, Time. Oh, maybe I should make this point too, because I think it, 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 it says something about how I relate to Goffman, which is when you read these sort of grand theories, and it can be sociology, it can be psychology, it can be theology, it can be philosophy, you know, any one person who writes their sort of summa theologica or their grand theory of the universe is wrong. <laughs> you know, um, Freud's psychoanalytic theory about the unconscious mind is not true. Um, it's not even, it's not even science, right? I mean, if one, if you've ever tried to read Freud, he's phenomenally boring, but it's not science. It's, um, 
the it, you know it's 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 brilliant and it's it's certainly an accomplishment and it, it is meaningful and in many ways his ideas have endured many of his ideas have endured i should say many of the broad strokes of his ideas have endured um and he's profoundly influential but it's not true right his his idea of the the ego the superego and the id you know those are not true things those are not demonstrable things those are not things that were found in scientific analysis right um it's almost like the sum of his his work is it's it's art right it's almost uh it's speculative but it's not demonstrably true and yet like an artist like a novel like a piece of fiction that you read when you engage with it it may very well speak to you it may very well feel like the truth it may help you understand your life as you have experienced it and there's for me it's it's something about the I Ching it's something about you know many of the source texts in Chinese philosophy Confucius the Tao Te Ching there's something about those texts while not true speak to something true in me that I experience all the time and whatever I encounter in the whatever the archetypes or ideals that I encounter in those texts are who I've been trying to be my whole life you know when I read the Christian Bible and believe me your boys read the Christian Bible cover to cover I can read the New Testament especially and there are moments where I, I see Jesus as a sort of influential and informative teacher and someone worth emulating, but that's fairly infrequently, you know, I, it's not, I'm more moved when I read the Iliad or the Odyssey than I am reading the New Testament, right? Or the Aeneid for that matter. I mean, I remember there's a couple moments. I mean, when I think of the Iliad, there's a moment where uh, Hector is leaving for battle and he basically just, you know, holds his son up in the air and sort of says goodbye to him, you know? And there's just something about that that sits with me. I mean, I, I, remember, I remember where I was sitting when I read that. I mean, similarly, when I was reading the Aeneid, there's a moment um, where Aeneas is going, it's sort of near the end of the book, maybe in chapter 11, book, or book 11 or something like that. And he basically said to, says to his son, who he's about to go into battle with for the first time, you know, uh, learn fortitude and toil from me. You know, learn the ache of true toil. You know, other traits you can learn from your mother, but... You know, when eventually you become a man, when you come to man's estate, look to your father Aeneas, you know, and your uncle Hector. Was it, was was Aeneas Hector's brother? Anyway, he's pointing to Hector as well as like, look to us as role models for how a man behaves. Um, that's that was that's stirring for me, and I and I you know even reading the New Testament, I don't have experiences like that. Um, so anyway, yeah, Jesus, fine, but not. There's nothing about the, you know, the passion of the Christ, as they say, that speaks to me uh, on a deep level. Um, I do feel that with Chinese philosophy. And so while not true, there is a truth of sorts in it for me. And that may sound very obvious to many of you. Um, I don't know. I don't know why we're hinging on this for so long, but it's a weird place for me to be. And it's hard for me to, I, I, I guess in some ways I feel accountable for that. Like I need to explain that somehow to people. Um, I wish it was just enough when my therapist says, Oh, why is that interesting to you? I could just say, I don't know. Cause it is. And sort of just be content with that. 
you know? I mean, maybe in some ways it's like our political positions where it's like if we really, I mean, I think one of the reasons we're so contentious about them is because our personal beliefs, especially when it comes to politics, are so meaningful to us because we see the truth in them. The, the truth is so clear to us that the fact that other people don't adhere to the same policies or beliefs, you know, things that we're truly secure about, we don't really argue over, right? Like, if there was a whole, um, uh, if there was a whole population of people who believed that I was purple, I would spend no time debating them, right? I would just say, okie dokie, well, enjoy that. But the fact that we argue over these things so vehemently is because they say so much about how we experience the world and what is true to us that the uncertainty that we're met with, or the skepticism or the ridicule that we're met with because of what we very where we where we what we actually believe believe to be true is so false to somebody else it really makes us insecure about our perspective on the world it makes us insecure about our worldview and basically our how calibrated we are as people you know someone may not be saying it directly but almost by virtue of the fact that somebody is voting for a different presidential candidate i think sometimes we infer that we're nuts like and to that person we're crazy you know, we're more than just wrong. We literally, there's something about our fundamental perspective of the way that we see the world that is flawed. You know, and that's a wounding feeling. That's a shaming feeling. And I think I feel something like that when, I'm not saying people actually ask me to account for my beliefs, but when I feel like I have to account for my beliefs, I feel very insecure. You know, I wish it was just enough for me to say, oh, I get a lot of meaning out of it. I do feel torn between knowing how I very personally, I mean, it makes sense to me, but having to account for it, having to explain it to other people, that that's a challenge for me. You know, well, there was something that came up for me that actually that I, I hadn't really connected these dots, but I'm realizing is actually really crucial to this point. And I, unfortunately it relates to work and I can't, I cannot bring it up. Unfortunately, that's disappointing. Um, but yes, is there a way I can still sort of talk around this? Um, yeah, I don't know. Frankly, in me thinking about it, I've sort of lost the thread. So sorry about that. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Is there another direction we can go with this? Frankly, my stomach is growling. I was kind of talking over it. <clears throat> I was trying to continue talking over it because I didn't want the mics to pick it up, but they may have. They may have already. Um, I don't know. Yeah, what else to say? I don't know. I want things to be true. I want to be right. I want... I don't know. Is it stupid to say I want to feel like I'm making progress? 
You know, I want to make, I want to, I want to feel like I'm advancing in my worldview. I want to feel like that I've learned something as I've lived, as I continue to age, that I've learned something, that I'm not just sort of, uh, still feeling my way forward in the dark. It's strange. I think if you had pulled me over at like 15 and said at 35, you know, how do you think you'll feel? I think I would have felt pretty, I don't think I would have felt this way. You know, it's not categorically bad. I mean, I think at least objectively, my life kind of looks a lot like it looks fine for 35. Um, Maybe not to everyone's standards, but I mean, for my very personal standards for myself, life is okay. There's not too much to complain about. Um, there's things I want, sure, but in other ways, I'm, I'm very lucky. Um, but I, I'm talking about the objective feeling. You know, I didn't think I would feel this... I don't know. I could be speaking just about like the last couple of weeks, but yeah, I do feel a little, I don't know, like my compass is spinning. I feel a little, I don't know, not, not necessarily directionless, but I don't know. I think I, I thought I would have felt fully formed. You know, I didn't think I would have as many of the same big questions that I continue to have. You know, and if you're older than 35, if you're 45, if you're 55, you're probably laughing, thinking, yeah, well, that's what it is. You know, I was talking about this with uh, with a coworker of mine, and she was saying that at some point she realized, I think at 30, that all adults were just kind of faking it. I don't know that I necessarily agree with that, but I think I know what she means. You know, I, when you're young especially, you sort of think of the kid world and the adult world, and you just assume that... I think you go through life and you sort of assume that life is like school where there's grades and you basically have to do the requisite work to, to graduate. And if you don't do the right work, you get held back. Um, there's plenty of adults I can think of who are developmentally disabled as far as I'm concerned, but, um, you just kind of get to age, right? And you get to get older. You have no choice in the matter, frankly, but I think I just sort of thought that adults sort of aged at the same rate, you know, and, um, yeah, it's just, (laughs) it's disappointing to be 35 and think, damn, this is what other 35 year olds felt like. It's kind of a wonder that anything ever gets done at all, really. Man, we're all kind of just faking it until we make it. I think one of the problems is we think like, what's the famous quote? Like those who don't, learn from the past are condemned to repeat it. Um, I think we are just condemned to repeat the past regardless. I mean, there's the whole idea of the never ending story and there's nothing new under the sun. I think, you know, the scenery, the dressing changes, you know, the, the specifics change, but it does feel like a fucking revolving door of life, right? That we're all just living through the same drama over and over again. You know, today feels like the civil rights movement of, you know, Jesus Christ, say, is it 60 years ago, 50, 60 years ago? It's just the same shit over and over again. And there are progresses of a sort. And yet the fundamental issues continue to, to endure. And I think part of that is so much of our life is sort of constrained by our biological development, right? You know, I've talked about turning 30, there is a palpable change or sea change or shift in the way that you experience yourself. And I think a lot of it has to do with your, you know, the fact that your brain has stopped developing. Um, 
you know, I think we like to think that the incoming generation is sort of, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of like a computer anal- analogy. They come like with with uh, the requisite software already installed as if they don't just have to figure it out like the fucking rest of us. You know what I mean? And I'm not saying that, you know, my generation, my, you know, this generation is very different than my generation and and everybody comes up in a different sort of cultural zeitgeist and, you know, life is very different in many ways, but, you know, they still have to figure it out. You know, it's, it's not like, uh, you know, that we just pass the, but it's not, it's not like a relay race where we're, all we do is simply pass the baton. It's like, you know, kids are kids and they're kind of dumb for a long time. And, uh, does that make sense? You guys know what I'm talking about? I think you guys understand. I don't really need to go into it much deeper than that. I think you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, we'd like to just think that we keep building on the past, but, you know, in some ways it's like with every generation, the Etch-A-Sketch gets shook. You know what I mean? We got to start over. You know, we'd like to think that they're just carrying on our good work, but. A lot of times there's a lot of tearing down too. I mean, it's sort of like a house. It's like a renovation. It's like we spend time in this house and we decorate it the way we want to. And to us, it looks fucking beautiful. And then a young couple comes in and they're buying their first home and they look around and they see a lot of potential, you know, but they're basically going to move in. They're going to undo all the work that we did, take the house back down to its studs and try to rebuild. And by the time they finish and it's time to sell, there's going to be another young couple that comes in and looks around and we want them to just sort of bask in the glow of what we've been able to create and, and it's tailor-made for them and you're welcome, by the way. And yet when they take over, they fucking tear down a wall and build onto it and dig a pool in the backyard or whatever the case may be and you know they build it to their tastes. And all the while, there is a drama that continues to play out that we always think we're solving, but we never solve, (laughs) you know, we're sort of condemned to repeat it. It's like when you look back and you read, you know, they'll find some scrap of something from 2000 years ago, and it's an older man complaining about the younger generation. And it sounds like, it sounds exactly like something an old person would say today. You know, it's like the specifics change, the circumstances change, and yet it's the same drama playing out over and over again. Hmm. I'm thinking of a few things. I forget who wrote it, but there was, it came up in my, when I was in like eighth grade Latin class of all things. But my teacher referenced this person who believed that there were basically only seven stories that you can tell. And I don't remember all of them, but they were things like homecoming, revenge, uh, some shit like that. I don't know, but there were basically only seven stories that you could tell. That just sort of reminds me of, yeah, it's almost like, yeah, the specifics change, obviously, but there's only so many story arcs that we have. Um, that just continue to play out in the same ways. And for some reason, I'm thinking about, me and my brother were talking about Sapir-Whorf. Have you heard of the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis or Whorfianism? It's the idea that language, well, there's two forms of it, actually. There's the strong form, which is that literally language determines thinking. That literally language is the boundary of what we're able to to think about. Um, 
you know, there are concepts that are very normal in some cultures due to their language, which are completely foreign in others. Um, one of the, I think one of the things that comes up is in, in Japan, there's a concept called amai, which is basically the, the need to feel supported by, um, I think it's your social group or by society or by your parents. And that's a, a good thing in Japanese culture. It's, uh, it's a good thing. Whereas, um, in America, we would use words like dependent or, uh, it would have a it would have a pejorative sense like needing because we're an individual individual individualistic culture and Japan is more of a collectivistic culture we value independence and so we don't have we don't think about and we don't have concepts like amai which is the the need um, or so we say anyway the strong form of the, the of, of warfianism would say that we 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 don't have these concepts but um, the soft form the soft form is basically that. Um, that it, uh, um, our language informs our thinking. Uh, and why am I thinking about this? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that it follows from what I was talking about, but I was thinking about, there's this horrible documentary that I saw years ago. It's called what the bleep do we know? What the bleep do we know? And it's one of these, in a way, when I, when I talk about how I find meaning in the I Ching, this is what I'm scared people think I'm talking about, which is not at all what I'm talking about. Because there are, there's this sort of, I mean, speaking of things that don't change, there is this revolving door of people who try to weave new age concepts into the, the you know, basically the fringe of modern science. And so you get these people, like there's a book called The Dancing Wooly Masters, which is basically about how modern physics basically just reinforces and validates everything that, you know, especially ancient Eastern philosophy has been saying forever, which is complete bullshit because there's nothing about, um, quantum physics or mechanics that is, has anything to do with Eastern philosophy. I mean, people find points of contact or whatever, but it's, it's, it's all bullshit. This, this book, uh, or the, sorry, this documentary rather, what the bleep do we know was basically like that. It was basically trying to, use quantum physics, quantum mechanics as a way to, I, th- I think, underscore the sort of Eastern philosophical concepts or whatever the fuck. But they tell this anecdote that's always stuck with me. And as I'm sitting in the theater, I just thought, this is complete bullshit. But they said that, um, and they didn't, they didn't sort of uh, invoke a uh, Warfianism to, to, to justify this, but it was something like, they said because the indigenous Americans at the time that the Spanish came to the Americas, because the indigenous Americans had never seen a ship, because they had, I mean, they had canoes and stuff, but because they had never seen anything like, you know, the types of ships that are in the Spanish Armada or whatever it is, they literally, because they had no concept of it, because it didn't already exist in their reality, they, they literally very literally could not see the ships as they were approaching. It was only when the ships got so close that they could see another person. You know, they, they, I think they tried to even say it just like to the indigenous Americans, it would look, it would have looked like people just floating on the sea toward the, toward the shore. I remember thinking, what the fuck? What the fuck's wrong with people? Who believes this shit? And I, speaking of like Homer or whatever, I think, there's a reference in the Odyssey where they talk about the wine dark sea. And I think there's been some scholarly debate about that, about whether or not the ancient 
Greeks could see the color blue or something like that? Why would somebody call the sea wine dark? I mean, to me, I think it, I, I mean, I don't know. My mind automatically goes to like translucence, right? Like wine, light does not penetrate, light does not penetrate wine, so it's dark. So something equally impenetrable or opaque, is that the word? Would, could be wine dark, right? Like the light does not, pen, the sea is deep, light doesn't pass through it, it's wine dark. Does it have to be color? But anyway, dude, what the fuck am I talking about? How the fuck did we get on this nonsense? I was talking about nothing new under the sun. Maybe it had, maybe this idea that some people think new things are outside our conceptual realm when that's nonsense. I I don't fucking know. I, I don't, I don't pretend to understand. Oh man, I don't fucking know folks. Oh, but yes, uh, I've returned to Chinese philosophy. Actually, if you want a recommendation, I would say um, there's a, I don't know if you call he's not, I don't think he's a sinologist. I think he's a general historian and philosopher, but uh, his name is John Gardner. I think I have his book here. Hold on one second. Oh, <clears throat> there is an author named John Gardner. He wrote uh, Grendel. He wrote a couple other books, but that's somebody else. This is uh, Daniel K. Gardner, and he has a, um, it's a, sort of a slim book. It's called The Four Books, The Basic Teachings of the Later Confucian Tradition. And if you've ever thought, maybe I should look into this, you know, this sort of Chinese philosophy thing, I'd highly recommend it because it sort of summarizes and um, it has a complete translation of both the great learning and the doctrine of the mean, which are, well, fuck it. Basically, the four books are around the 1300s. Um, There's been different sort of canons of Chinese classics over the years. It was 12, it was 15. But after around 1300 or so, it became the four books. And there was a Chinese philosopher named Chu Shi, who was very influential. And basically, his philosophy was so influential, he basically said, these are the four books. Like, the, from now, from moving forward, these are the four texts that we focus on. Not that the others get deleted, but these are the four core texts that people will study. And in, in his interpretation became the... Um, uh, the, the the interpretation, the canonical interpretation that people were supposed to adopt and accept. Um, maybe, maybe like the King James Bible, right? This was like the Chushi Chinese philosophy Bible, were these four texts, and it was uh, it was a sh- it was well, actually there were two of them are basically just chapters from an old book called the Book of Rights. One is the Great Learning, the other is the Doctrine of the Mean. Um, some people translate it as maintaining perfect balance, but the great learning doctrine of the mean, the Analects of Confucius and the Mencius, the philosophy of, of the Chinese philosopher Mencius. Um, but anyway, this book has a complete translation of the great learning and doctrine of the mean, which are very short, but it also has a great, uh, abridgment of the Analects and Mencius. And if you ever wanted to peruse these things, I highly recommend it because even though, you know, those texts are sort of interpreted and sort of shown in the light of, like, later Confucian understanding, like Chushi was what they call a neo-Confucianist. It's still an interesting introduction. And, uh, yeah, I don't know, it might pique your interest. It has a great introduction, it has great commentary, um, and it's a relatively swift read. So, yeah, I don't know, highly recommend it. It's called The Four Books by Daniel K. Gardner. Check it out.
<clears throat> yeah, sometimes I think I'd like to sort of create my own syllabus or yeah, my own syllabus for Chinese philosophy. Like what are the what are the what are the cortex you should read and what are the what are like the first translations you should read? Cuz I dude, I fucking have thoughts about this. Like if you were to read the Confucius, what should be the first translation you read? What should be the second translation you read? Actually, I even had someone at work. We were sort of catching up over our sort of messaging system because we're all working remotely. And uh, this is actually one of the volunteers that we work with. And, and he was like, you know, he knows I'm going back to school. Excuse me. And he was like, what would you study if it had, didn't fucking matter? You know, money, career, whatever, what would you study? And the first thing that came to mind was Chinese philosophy. You know, I don't know if I'd want to learn Chinese, But something like that, I think I'd like to have a better understanding of the historical context that a lot of these texts were written in, and um, and uh, you know, and and just an understanding of actually how they came to be. Because I think you know, like any religious text, a lot of the canonical versions or the received versions of these texts are their accretions, right? And they get credited, you know, they say it was written by Confucius in, you know, the year 500 BC, but really the received text we have could be an amalgamation of many things, you know, that was compiled in the year 200 BC or a few hundred years later. Um, but yeah, just a better kind of understanding of the, of the historical context and, and stuff like that. Or maybe not, maybe I'd hate it. Maybe I, maybe I think that's what I want. And then I'd lose touch with what I really enjoy about the text, which is just reading them. Maybe things are perfect just the way they are. Yeah, I don't know. Sorry, I'm shuffling cards. You ever see these people who write these leaving Facebook posts? Or let alone multiple ones? They'll post these long... Uh, epistles about why they're leaving Facebook and how it's a toxic, destructive culture, and they're over the um, the the, the, the uh, polemics, and they're over the this, and it's toxic, and you, and then they fucking never leave. <laughs> you ever have that? People say things like, "It's it's always this long about how they're disengaging and they're going to go dormant." And hey, if you want to stay in touch, you can find me on these platforms, which I find more meaningful, or shoot me a text, and yada yada yada. And then, like within a year, they're back. And they're back to the same bullshit, and they're posting the same bullshit. I always get a kick out of that for some reason. I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know. Maybe it has to go back to this Goffman performance thing. Maybe it's like I like seeing the cracks in people's performance. You know, it's like I like seeing someone get up there and sort of calling for attention, and then we'll just sort of see how it plays out. You know, I think we're all like that. I think a lot of us like to be the critic. You know, we like to sort of sit in the wings and just sort of. I don't know. I mean, what's it is? It's a cliche, right? Everyone's a critic. <sighs> I was sort of well. I won't incriminate anybody else, but I was talking with somebody else about this concept, which is uh, you see it in in the Bay Area a lot, and apparently this person I was speaking with, you see it in their part of the country too. But a lot of the left wing people have these signs in their yards now that say, "In this house, we believe." Actually, dude, I'm gonna Google image this shit because I really want I really want you to hear all of this. So, in this house, we believe sign. Okay, yeah, I'm sure you've seen this one, but 
Right, so the one I see says... Oh, God. Just give me the image, please. In this house, we believe black lives matter, women's rights are human rights, no human is illegal, science is real, love is love, kindness is everything. Or some variation of that, you see. And I don't disagree with any of those statements. But I was talking about the, this sign is so fucking popular. Someone's making money off of it, first of all. But the commodify, we were talking about the commodification of belief systems. And also the weirdness that you are the type of person, if you look at that sign and say, oh, that's for me, basically your worldview is commodified. It can be neatly packaged in this way. And again, I'm not saying I disagree with any of those statements, but again, I don't think there's a sign that fully encompasses what I believe. And also my thought is, who is this sign for? You know, do you think you're going to change anyone's mind? Do you think anyone walking down the street who has any views which are contrary to these beliefs are going to be convinced? It's a weird broadcasting thing. And I might regret going into this territory, but one thing we were also talking about is the signs that say, refugees welcome here. Now, I understand, there's definitely value. It's like, if you live in a community where there may happen to be refugees, it can signal to people to feel safer, and that's not nothing. But, again, I know virtue signaling is an overused term, and I, I, I don't know this to be true, but I bet it probably came out of the alt-right or something like that. But there's something to it, and it's just, I don't know, I'm sort of equating the two things. Someone who sort of gets on Facebook and bloviates it, how they're leaving it, and it's toxic, and they're moving on, and they, they're looking for more meaningful forms of engagement, and then they're back within a year. I don't know. I feel like for most people, there's something about buying this sign and sticking it in your front yawn, front yawn, Freudian slip, your front lawn that makes you think like you've done something when in actual fact, you've done nothing. You bought a sign. This person I was speaking with actually said that people are asking, where can I buy, where can I buy a Black Lives Matter sign? And it's like, homie, um, make one. <laughs> I mean, actually, me and my girlfriend saw this kind of cool thing when we were driving. Um, I always, I always about to say where I, I don't know why I want to tell, not tell you folks where I live, but I was driving around the area where I live, and there was this like abandoned gas station. There was like forty people, and they had like taken over this abandoned gas station, and they were using it as a grounds to make political signs. They were making Black Lives Matter signs. They were making this or that signs, and they were basically just handing them out to people in traffic. Like people could stop by and at every red light, they just asked people, "Hey, you want a sign?" And I thought, now that's fucking cool. Now that is fucking something I can get behind. But just running out and buying the We Believe sign? Uh, commodification. I don't know. Someone's going to message me and say, hey, actually, did you realize that all the proceeds of those signs go to the Black Lives Matter? And I'll be like, oh, fuck. Well, shit. Okay. I don't know. I regret half the shit I say, frankly. Not that I don't believe half the shit I say. I just regret saying half the shit I say. Oh, man. You know, the last couple of weeks, I had my buddy... My buddy told me that the last couple of episodes were pretty strong, and I, I don't know. I think we determined that maybe it was because I went through the week and sort of took notes. And I didn't take... I didn't take a lot of notes, but I'm kind of looking at them now and seeing if there's anything that pops up for me. I was sort of surprised my girlfriend, just because we're kind of orbiting politics right now. I was over at my girlfriend's place... And she was having to do this like remote presentation. And there was, it sounded like maybe like six other female voices when she was signing on. And I was sort of sneaking out of her apartment trying to be quiet. 
Um, uh, and I overheard as they're sort of doing the introductions, one of the female voices says something about, well, and when you have a maniac as a president, that's to be expected. And she sort of paused and there was sort of some chuckles. And then she sort of qualified and said, I'm sorry if I offended anybody with that statement. But I just thought, I fucking agree that President Trump is a maniac. But I thought, what a weird thing to say in a formal setting, right? Like, my girlfriend works in a very sort of predominantly liberal field. It's not social work, but it's like social work. Like, you can walk into a social worker's meeting and you, you know, you can never be 100% 100% certain, but if you had to bet, you could pretty much guarantee that everybody there doesn't fucking like Trump. But it seemed like such a weird thing to refer to the president as a maniac in a professional setting. And of course, you sort of feel like you, I think as soon as the words leave your mouth, you have to apologize. You do you do the sort of cursory, oh, sorry if I offended anybody with that statement, knowing that you, you probably didn't. But I just thought, isn't that weird? Why does that bother me? I agree, he's a maniac. He's probably the worst... I mean, he almost certainly is the worst president in history. But why does it bother me that we talk about it that way? It still seems to violate something about decorum. And I'm already hearing people say, well, hey, you know, it's like fucking... Should people not have spoken against Hitler because of decorum? And yet, I don't know. There's something about hearing that that fucking did not sit well with me. I don't know. There's, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if this makes sense. I, I, I may regret saying this also, but there's something about our current political situation where maybe, maybe it's always been this way. Maybe, you know, maybe my point about, you know, there being nothing new under the sun still holds here also. But one thing that I feel contributing to my anxiety a great deal is I am wondering if we have ever been held so publicly accountable for our private opinions, for our formally private opinions. I mean, you know, I don't want to be one of these guys who says, oh, well, when I was growing up, things were different. But it was commonly understood that you are not supposed to talk about religion and politics because it leads to open conflict amongst people in areas that there probably doesn't need to be conflict. But, and maybe, maybe, maybe it's progress in a way, but I don't know that there's ever been a time where people have been held so publicly accountable for their private opinions. Huh. Right. I mean, what if we held people to the same sort of public accountability for their honesty? You know, for I'm, I'm just trying to think of what other virtues, if, you know, if it is virtue signaling, what other virtues or moral measures are people having to be so publicly accountable for? Huh. Anyway. Right. So, as a listener, can you tell that I'm scared? Cowering the cheat sheet of thoughts for things to talk about? Is it obvious yet? You know, there's this thing with stand-up comedy. Like, 
segues are a thing and it's a craft. And when you do stand up comedy, as you're going from subject to subject, you have to find ways to make it conversational, to make it feel like these disparate jokes that came up in isolation are somehow tangentially related. They make it sound like a conversation so that when you do your hour long comedy special, the thoughts flow from one to the other. And there's a way to skirt this, and it's to be a comedian named Mitch Hedberg, who had no segues, because his jokes are these sort of one-liners. I mean, Dimitri Martin is kind of another example, and there are others. But, you know, what always bugged me about stand-up comedians sometimes is when they would not have good segues and try to apologize for it, but they weren't Mitch Hedberg. Do you know what I mean? It's like either do it and do it well, or don't do it at all and be Mitch Hedberg. But I always would hate it when people would acknowledge their shitty segues. Like they would sort of just say, they would just go into another topic and then they, they would acknowledge that it did not, that that topic does not follow from the previous one. They would be talking about one thing, go into something else and it would be so abrupt that the audience would laugh and they'd say, yep, just no segues, folks. And it's like, it just, just do your joke. We understand. You got the laugh. Anyway... It goes back to this thing, too, I notice in television shows. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's writing for TV and the producers just think people are stupid. But I find every joke that's made on a show now, people have to point out that it's a joke. Like, a lot of, like, are you actually doing that? And it's like, yeah, that's the joke. But characters have to, like, editorialize the drama that's taking place. Like, someone will say, someone will say a racist comment that's... Meant, I'm not saying it's meant to be funny as in like it's genuinely funny but I mean like when you watch The Office like Michael Scott's character says ridiculous things that are completely inappropriate but it's like they need uh, they need to put objections into the mouths of other characters so that people don't fucking write letters into CBS or something like that like it's like Michael Scott will say something uh, homophobic and the gay character will say, oh my God, did you really just say that to me? Do you realize how inappropriate that is? And it's like, that's the humor. Does that make sense? I don't know. There's something about, you know, uh, editorializing your own segues that uh, relates to that somehow. Anyway, dude, God, your boy's dumb. Where are we at, dude? We're just shy of the hour mark here, huh? So a couple more minutes. I don't know. What else is there to complain about? We're all kind of watching the same content on Netflix, yeah? Like, how many of you, how many of you just watched The Town in the last couple of weeks? <laughs> I watched it. It was, on, it was like, it was on the banner on Netflix. I fucking hated that movie when I saw it when it first came out. I didn't see it in theaters. I saw it. I must have seen it. I may have downloaded it, frankly. Do you guys remember torrent downloading? Jesus Christ. I can't remember the last time I bootlegged something or torrented a movie or a television show or something. But, um, yeah, The Town is not a good movie. Um, it does this thing that I fucking hate. In a way, it kind of, maybe it kind of relates to segues also, but monologues. Like, actors have monologues, and they all start off the same shitty way. Like, Ben Affleck has this moment in The Town where it's like he's kind of a Boston guy, a towny guy, and, you know, he's not vulnerable, but he's, like, having a, a, a vulnerable moment with the, the female, the, his romantic interest, and she's trying to probe him about his family, and he's, like, being withholding, and you see him sort of think, and then as soon as she's ready to move on, he takes a beat, and he says, the sound woke me up. And you're like, what the fuck? Like, here we go. We know we're going into a monologue, and the other character just sort of, like, you know, 
just sort of listens intently while this person speaks for 15 minutes and they recount some story about their life that's supposed to, uh, you know, add dimension to their character. Like the one that pops to mind is, have you seen the movie Pay It Forward with Kevin Spacey and Haley Joel Osment and Helen Hunt, I believe? Is it Helen Hunt? I don't know. Anyway, it's not a very good movie. But Kevin Spacey plays this teacher who has scars on his face. And of course, you finally get around to the scene where he explains how he got his scars. And it's a very similar sort of monologue moment. And you think, yeah, you could just excerpt these and put them in a monologue anthology and people could do these for their fucking drama classes. The sound woke me up. Anyway. Dude, your boy's cranky pants. Fucking cranky McCrankerson. Well, I don't know, folks. We're over the hour mark. Does that suffice? It may have to. Maybe I'll just give myself permission to not do, you know, I think we average probably, we go about like an hour four, hour five. Somewhere between an hour and an hour ten. But we're over the hour mark. Maybe I think I'll just give myself permission to end here. Um, yeah. Thanks for listening, guys. Um... This was a interesting episode. I don't know that it was great, but it certainly seems to be in line with how I've been feeling the rest of the week anyway. So it's, uh, what can I say? I don't know if it was entertaining, but we know it was emotionally honest. Uh, if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, you can on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you're already a fan of the show, rate and review it. Give us a five-star review. Uh, write a review as well. Type a couple sentences about why you like the show and why you think others should listen. And if you can think of one person in your life who you think would like the podcast, send them your favorite episode. Um, Did I mention? Oh, well, I guess I should apologize. I guess the podcast was late um, last week. Uh, Normally, I set this to sort of be released Monday at midnight. And just for some reason, I accidentally set it to Monday at noon for the last one. So I did get a couple of messages from people saying, hey, where the fuck's the podcast? So that's encouraging. It lets me know that, uh, that some of you are anticipating the show and that you listen regularly. And that means a lot. Um, I guess I'm trying to say, if you can think of one person in your life you think would like the show, you can share it with them. And hell, you guys could fucking check in with each other and say, hey, do you hear the podcast? Yeah, it was a real stinker. Let's let's hope the next one's better. Or you'll say, dude, God, that guy's a fucking genius, which you probably will. So anyway, thanks for listening. Thanks for continuing to listen to the podcast. Thank you for your time. And ciao for now. Ciao.